Uh, this morning we're going to finish up our series on uh, friendship. And we're going to look specifically at friendship and faith. And uh, I guess the first point I want to make is as simple as this. Is that friends are going to share faith. Friends are going to share faith. So Matt, how, how do you make the case for this? Well, just think about all the stuff that we've learned so far. I would say that friends share faith because we're designed to find our friends. Right? God has placed in us this desire to connect with other people. We've said that faith or friendship is being able to see the same truth, look in the same direction. Um, friendship isn't like, uh, like romantic love where we look face to face, but we look in the same direction, see the same truth, C.S. Lewis says. Uh, we've said that friendship was a matter of being vulnerable and faithful. That this is how Jesus defined friendship when he let his disciples in and into his vulnerability and also uh, trusted uh, them to be faithful. And he faithful to them. We said that uh, friendship uh, was a matter of speaking the truth in love. Uh, that, that friendship is built on the trust that comes from being truth tellers to each other. And that love is a matter of seeking to understand rather than simply trying to be understood. And then, of course, as we said this morning, as believers of Christ, we are not ashamed of the gospel. Amen? And so friendship is going to naturally lead to faith. We speak truth to one another. We are trying to look in the same direction. And we are not ashamed of the gospel. And so if you're in a friendship with someone, I would suggest that eventually you'll be sharing faith with them. So, Matt, that's a, a pretty simple premise, but how come I don't always see that? And it's true. Sometimes we don't see people sharing faith with friends. And what I want to talk to you about this morning are the two sort of reasons or two obstacles, I believe, that get in the way of people sharing faith with their friends. And the first one is simply this. It's called the Christian bubble. Um, essentially, there are people who surround themselves with only what? Only Christians. So they don't share faith with, uh, with, with friends because they already are of faith. They're already Christians. And believe it or not, this is a, a practice that is rooted, um, or at least many believe, is rooted in Scripture. Um, the Bible talks about the world with some pretty startling, well, startling images. Let's take a look at a couple. First off, James 4, verse 4 says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the, with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And so people who surround themselves with Christians oftentimes will say, I do this because I'm trying to be faithful to Scripture. I'm trying to uh, not befriend the world. Other passages like 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or how much? Anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, uh, loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Right, these are some pretty startling, dramatic statements about the world from Scripture that have led into people sort of moving into this, what I call a sacred isolation. And it's not something that just happens today. It's been happening for a long time. Long time. Uh, let me give you a couple examples. Qumran, uh, in the first century, even before Jesus was on the scene, had believed that, and rightfully so, that uh, the political and religious elite in Jerusalem had become heretical. 
And so they removed themselves from the world, from society, and started their own little um, faith commune where, uh, well, one of the things that they did is actually record and uh, copy scripture. We have um, the Dead Sea Scrolls from this community. So we did gain something from their isolation, but this is what happens a lot of time uh, in religious circles. It happens with the Pharisees. Now, they didn't pull themselves completely out of society, but their society was such that the rules and the way in which they went about doing life before Yahweh was so exclusive that most people couldn't find their way into that group. The same thing happened with uh, monasticism throughout church history. Um, there was a, a separation from the world that Jesus is calling us to, uh, uh, to give up on society in order to go and seek a life uh, alone. That's what monos, the root word for monasticism, means, is solitude, away from those low-down, dirty shame, <laughs> that, that evil, adulterous world. The, the, the Amish, uh, they have chosen whatever year it is, 1800 and something, uh, and said, this is holy and everything else after it, not. Right? To a, and to a degree, they have removed themselves from society as the norm and have isolated themselves in communities. The non, uh, and then many practice today, as we mentioned again, the Christian bubble, where we don't have uh, many people, if any, who are our friends who are non-believers. This, this, this is a, a tendency of ours, a tendency of humanity to, to kind of say, okay, the Bible says the world is an enemy uh, and friendship with the world's enemy, so we have to remove ourselves from the world to isolate ourselves and keep ourselves safe and, un, James would say, unspotted from that old world. And unfortunately, it's a misunderstanding of what the Bible says about the world. It's, it's a convoluting of two different uh, uses of the word world and, and sort of plays into our natural tendencies to kind of uh, do things with the people that we feel comfortable with. Uh, let, me, let me show you what I mean. Uh, well, the Bible does talk about the world as, uh, as a place where there are lost people. Let me give you an example of, of one where the Bible says the world is equated to lost people. You should probably know this one already, right? It says... For God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So this is a great example of when the world is used by Scripture to relate to lost people. The whosoevers, the people who are in need of being saved. And, and when the Bible actually talks about the world as the people who need to be saved, guess what God is doing with them? He's loving them. God loves lost people. Amen? Let me say that again. God loves lost people. And even the passage we, we mentioned a while ago about not uh, loving the world and the things that are in them, listen to how, if we just would continue the sentence, listen to how it qualifies what's really going on. It says, do not love the world or anything uh, or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. It's pretty clear, Matt. Don't love the world. But listen, listen to what he goes on to say. This is the contents of the world that he's talking about. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. 
The wilderness desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So the Bible uses the world in two senses. In one sense, the world is the location or the place where lost people are. And the Bible, while absolutely clear about their lost condition, states that God loves them. And then the Bible will also talk about the world in a sense of an evil worldview. The, the place where the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life are a way of life, a way of understanding, a system of belief. One of the, some of the language that we've used here as a church in describing what God is doing in, this, in the world is by talking about that six-act play. Remember when we talked about when mankind rebelled? It wasn't just a fall. It was a rise of a competitive kingdom. Where people uh, really are struggling with ultimately is our desire to be God. Well, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life are the lies of the competitive kingdom. It's the worldview of the competitive kingdom. And so let's just make it very clear. The Bible says, yes, the world is lost people. But when it says it, it says God loves them. But the world also, Bible also says the world is something to be rejected, to be afraid of, to, to, to keep distance from. And when it's used in that sense, it's not saying, church, get away from lost people. It's saying, don't adopt that worldview. To keep oneself unspotted from the world is not to spend any time, it's not to uh, neglect time with the world. It's to ne- ne- neglect adopting a, the lies of the competitive kingdom. And in fact, have you ever thought about this? That if we actually adopt the way of a sacred isolation, we're actually attempting to do ministry in a way that Jesus didn't. Right? We claim to love Jesus and then say, I don't like lost people. Well, it's kind of like saying, I really like you, Matt, but I don't like your children. It's not going to work. We can't claim to be followers of Christ and say, but those low down, dirty shame, that those lost people out there, that's not how it works. Listen to the way Jesus said the message of reconciliation works. Paul, Paul sums it up here for us in 2 Corinthians. He says that God was in the message of reconciliation is that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's what? Sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of of reconciliation. What is that? That we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal now through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul's shorthand is this. Just as God was in Christ, not accounting their sins against him, trying to reconcile people to the Father, even so now you and me are in the place where Christ was in the world, and God is now making His appeal through us. And guess what we have permission to do as well? Not count their sins against them. Are you tracking with me here? This is very, very important. We have permission to not count their sins against them. So Matt, how how can we do that? Well, the end of that paragraph says it. Because the sin problem has already been taken care of. Because God made him to be sin. So that we might be the righteousness of God. Everyone's sin has been paid for 
on the cross. Amen? That means you don't have to hold their sins against them. Because as we sang this morning, it was our sins that held them there. We don't have to hold sins against anyone else. The message of reconciliation isn't run from the world, isn't be afraid of the world. The message of reconciliation is we need to have love for the world. Believe it or not, there's Bible for having lost people as your friends. Did you know that? If, if you're a Christian and you don't have any lost friends, you're not doing it right. So man, that's a pretty bold statement, man. I mean, after all, every youth minister I ever had told me you got to get away from those evil influences. <laughs> right? I get it. There's wisdom in knowing what influences you and what doesn't. But at no time did God ever say, get out of here, it's too dirty. He's saying it's too dirty, so you got to get in the game. You got to get out there. You got to be with people. And, and I know this is true because Jesus had a reputation. And guess what it was? The reputation of Jesus wasn't, hey, man, this guy could, could really light up those sinners, right? It, listen to what his reputation was. And this is what he said about himself and John. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they said, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, he is a glutton. Who's he here? Jesus. They say that Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard and a what? Friend of tax collectors and who? Sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Christianity, the message of Christianity isn't get away from that dirty old world. Christianity is don't adopt the dirty old worldview. It's never get away. We are the continuing mission of Christ in the world. And how better, and what person better to explain the gospel than a person who's a believer to their friend who's not? Amen? Right? If you don't have any non-Christian friends, you don't look like Jesus. Jesus had a lot of non-Christian friends. So important. So, that's one of the obstacles. The obstacles that we have is a sacred isolation, a, a Christian bubble that we, we've sort of developed because of our misunderstanding of how the Bible talks about the world. Lost people are the very reason we're still here. God wants us to do our best to reach them. In fact, what does Peter say? God is not slow as some count slowness, but is patient, not wanting that any should what? Perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason Jesus hasn't come back yet, right? I can, uh, no one really knows when he's going to return, but I can tell you unequivocally why he hasn't returned yet. Because he's patient, waiting for everyone to come to repentance. Because God loves this world. And he's doing everything he can to reach our neighbors and our friends and our loved ones. So, the second obstacle is more related to the video that we talked about, uh, that we saw just a moment ago. Right? One of the obstacles that we don't share faith with our friends isn't just because we don't have lost friends. Sometimes it's because we're afraid of running them off. Right? Have you ever felt that way? Show of hands. If I share my faith with this person, they're going to run away. There's going to be distance. Well, 
I'm not about to give you the secret sauce to never running away your friend. Let me just tell you, there is no secret sauce uh, to never running or to, to running off your friends. There's just no secret sauce to it, right? There's no silver bullet. I, I can't give you 16 steps how to influence your friends for Jesus without ever making them mad. It's going to happen. Could happen. Remember, the, the, the issue of Christianity isn't that we sin, is that we think we're gods. And the thing that ticks people off the most is telling them they're not really supposed to be in control of their life. You know, Jesus takes the will. It's great to sing. Tell your friends about it. That's real. All of a sudden, it's like a different, uh, a different response. What do you mean? I, who are you going to tell me to do? Right? So I'm not, I'm not trying to say what I'm about to share with you is going to completely fix everything. It's not. But I want to share with you a few things that if we keep in mind can help us to share faith with our friends uh, in a way that I believe that is like Jesus and that will hopefully, eventually, lead to them coming to faith. One of the first things we have to do is share space. Um, I think there's a tendency for us many times to try to get our lost friends to our stuff and to our events and to our places of faith. Have you noticed that? Um, this is how church works. And, and don't get me wrong, I think church needs to be a part of the invitation that you're giving to people. But um, most non-believers, if all you're ever doing is asking them to your space, they're going to feel like they're being judged. And, and, and by the way, that's not the model of, of early Christianity. It wasn't, wait here and the world will come to you. <laughs> In fact, persecution broke out, and it took persecution to break out for them to actually leave Jerusalem and go back home and do what they're supposed to do. This idea that Christianity is about building it and they will come is totally backwards from the way it actually worked in the first century. The way it worked in the first century is you get saved, go back to your village. You guys remember the, the demoniac that, um, that Jesus healed? And the demoniac was like, hey, I'm, I'm healed now. Why don't I go with you and help you, Jesus? And Jesus was like, no, go back home, right? Why? Because the guy's wearing pants now, right? And that's going to be a big news to everyone in his hometown. Why are you wearing pants now? Because Jesus saved me, right? This is how, this is how Jesus gets things done. He, he gets us to their space. We've got we to gotta get to their space. And there's not just Jesus on it. Paul says it this way. Though I'm free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. To win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To win the Jews, to those under the law, I became like under the law. Uh, though I myself not under the law. So as to win the law, under the law. Win, to win those under the law, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, uh, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those who, uh, those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To, the, uh, to win the weak, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. And I do this for the sake of the what? The gospel that I might share in its blessing. I love Paul. He's, he's definitely a, a rabbinic thinker, right? He wants to tell you, I act like the Jews around the Jews and I act like Gentiles around the Gentiles. But he's like, that doesn't mean I'm like lawless. I know he's kind of worried about that. But the point is, he, he goes where they are. He does what they do. He practices the way they practice. The, the, the things that are, that are okay for him to practice as a believer. He, he, he's saying, when in Rome... Jews the Romans. That's why when, when, when our missionology, right, our, our example to, to reach the world is all about getting people here, we miss it. 
The, the, the really, uh, everyone raise your hand for a second. Welcome. This is now the evangelistic team at New Beginnings. You didn't know you were signing up today, but that's who you are, right? The idea of evangelism isn't, hey, get them here. The idea of evangelism is you go out there. You share the gospel. You go and share their space. If you don't share their space, they're going to feel judged. In fact, there's a, a number of models I'm familiar with that, that would say it this way. You share their space, their activities, far more than you do anything else. Then you, do, you share their activities and your space and do that for a while before you ever ask them to share in your activities at your space. By the way, that's just a good principle of being a friend, too. Notice the guy on the rooftop? He didn't didn't share their space. He also was like literally 60 feet above reproach, right? You're a smoker. You're this. You're that. You're this. You're that. Right? Um, Do you realize your Christian, your non-Christian friends, you'll gain more credibility with your non-Christian friends by being real about your weakness than ever trying to pretend you're without fault. Straight up. That's why the old models of we have to model it for them. Unless you're a great model, I mean, maybe there's someone out here that's just doing it right all the time. Our job isn't to convert them to my lifestyle, amen? Our job is to convert them to my Lord. In fact, if you're real about your weaknesses, guess who shines even more? Because guess what? You have a face that only Jesus can love. (laughs) Straight up. Your life, right? Your life is a life that only Jesus can love. And and, and being able to be real about our weaknesses allows people to say, you know, if God can save that dude, (laughs) he can save me. Right? And now, don't get me wrong, they're going to call you out when you, when, you, when you claim to be a Christian and lose your temper. They're going to call you out when you claim to be a Christian and you're dropping language. <laughs> they're going to call you out when you claim to be a, a Christian and you're not living up to your side of the deal. The trick is not saying, uh, uh, you know, just say, you know, you're right. <laughs> I blew it. They will respect you. They will listen to you. You will gain an audience. Um, and people won't walk around thinking, hey, Christians think you have to be perfect to, to become a Christian. Um, you don't. In fact, that's the one thing you have to confess. <laughs> I'm not. God, perfect, head in the right direction, sharing their weakness. Um, so where does that put us? This is the message version of Romans 3. Uh, Eugene Peterson just passed away. He, he authored this, uh, this book. Uh, some people don't like him. I think he does a great job of kind of summarizing a text. Let's listen to what he says here. He says, so where does that put us, speaking of the Jews and Gentiles? Do we Jews get a better break than others? So not really. Basically, all of us, whether insiders or outsiders, start out with the same identical condition, which is to say we all start out as what? Scripture leaves no doubt about it. There's nobody living right. So why do we make the gospel about living right? No one living right. Not even one. Nobody knows the score. Nobody's alert for God. They've all taken the wrong turn. They've all wandered down the blind alley. No one's living right. I can't find a single one. 
That's why the gospel can't be live like me. That's why the gospel can't be good advice. Do this and you'll be saved. That's why the gospel has to be someone did it right in your place. Amen? So we have to share space. We have to share weaknesses. We have to share the gospel. This is so important. I have noticed, and I was one, and the reason I noticed is I used to be one of these people, that people confuse the gospel for what people are called to do in response to it. Right? We, 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 we have verbiage sometimes, right? Uh, churches of Christ have uh, a tendency to use the, the five steps, right? Here, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. And, and, and uh, all that is is a sort of Bible summary of things that people did to respond to the gospel. But I've heard people say, that's the gospel. And they say, well, if you didn't say it right, then you're perverting the gospel. Uh, here, believe, repent, confess, be baptized is not the gospel. The gospel is not what we do to respond to Jesus. The gospel is what Jesus did in response to our sin. Right? The, the gospel is what God has already done. And it is good news in the sense that it tells us where to go, but it's not causal. It's not the saving factor. The saving factor is the substitutional atonement of Jesus on the cross. I've heard people say, like the gentleman on the roof. Uh, so you're not going to church today? So enjoy what? Hell. By the way, when, when you, that's your thinking, who's your Savior? Church! You've got to get to church to get saved! I, I, I've heard so many people say, man, you know, sister so-and-so, she did it wrong here and she did this and that and we're just praying she can get back to church before the Lord comes again. Give me a break. I get back to church. Jesus. Our goal. Listen to me. Understand what I'm saying here, right? Because it's going to sound really weird. Don't invite people to church. Invite people to Jesus. Church is awesome. Invite them to church, right? But the point is, your church isn't saving anybody. Jesus is saving people. The gospel is what Jesus has already done. And to do something, anything different than that, is to raise up a false savior. And Paul said it this way. I urge you then, first of all, the petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for the kings and all in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in, the go in godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For, and what is that truth? For there is one God and one mediator between God or, and mankind, and it's not your church. It's not your ritual. It's not even your obedience. There is one man who stands between God and mankind. And who is it? The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Preach the gospel. Don't preach your church. Preach the gospel. Invite them to Jesus. He's where salvation lies. Um, in fact, you know, in, in, in L.A., there are 
nine different news channels. I mean, just scads of news channels. And uh, in other places where I've lived, in San Diego, there was one. Um, it's the, you guys, uh, Anchorman was actually built off of, you guys were thinking that, you like? In San Diego, right? It is, it is literally that hokey in San Diego. But there, there's just one in San Diego. And, uh, but in L.A., you know, it's Hollywood. Everyone wants to get in the business. So there's just news broadcasts everywhere, right? So in San Diego, they're just like, hey, you've got to put up with our goofiness. In L.A., they fight for your competition. They, they fight for your attention. And at the end of their broadcast, they say something like this. Um, we know there are a lot of places where you can get your news. We're thankful that you chose to get it here. Because they recognize they're not the only game in town. Well, let me just tell you, there have been people, you, you, you need to adopt that when it comes to faith. Um, I love this church. I think we have a, 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 so much to offer. But we're not the only game in town. We're not. And, and if, if someone was coming to, to faith who, who, was, who, uh, who was really, really, well, there's just a lot of reasons why I might say, you know, you may be a better fit in that church. They confess Jesus. They don't do it all the same way we do. But that's okay. That's good. We're not the only game in town because church doesn't save us. Jesus does. That's one of the things I loved about the other day, Bruce, when we went over and prayed with all the pastors over the church over there. It was a room full of churches who don't do it all the same way, but they all know something unequivocally is true. That salvation lies in Jesus Christ alone. Love that. Sharing the gospel. Share the gospel. Not the gospel of good advice. Not the gospel of your church. What Jesus has done. And finally, um, I said that twice. That's how important it was. Um, <laughs> share life. You know, there was a book out a couple years ago. Um, they got a lot of people in trouble preaching because they preached it. Uh, it was called Unchristian. And it was the Barna Group, who's a statistical um, research uh, group. Um, and they polled 16 to 29-year-olds to determine what they actually thought about Christianity. And what they thought about Christianity is that it was, as the book title said, unchristian. Christianity doesn't look like Christ to them. And one of the things that they offered as one of their biggest issues is proselyting. And the idea of proselyting is that you care about someone so long as they're going to follow in faith. But the moment you feel like this prospect isn't going to make a claim for Christ, you move on to someone else and try to build a friend with them. And so that they feel like, and accurately so, the only reason you're a part of their life was to get them into your church. And now that you're there, they move on to be someone else's friend. That happens. It happens a lot. And it's sad. It's really sad. Because the Bible says, even if people don't come to faith, you're still under orders. These are the orders. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Notice that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them, of all the commandments, which one is the most important? The most important, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
And the second is this, to love your neighbor so long as they follow the same religion. <laughs> now, love your, la- your, your neighbor as, as what? So, don't lose your lost friends because they haven't came to faith yet. You're not there to just simply see if you can get them in the church or into Christ. You're there to love them. Amen? And one of the things I've learned is that your lost friends will see and test and measure whether or not you're really there for them or for their soul. And they will put off making any sort of commitment to you, any sort of positive statement about what you're doing in faith for a long time because they've been burnt in the past. You remember, Nancy, we had that discussion about your friend? I don't know if you're thinking about that. It just came to my mind. I saw you in the background. Nancy had this friend that they connected over some craft or something for a long time, and she was an atheist. And, uh, and, and Nancy never pushed it on her. Never pushed it on her. It was just always faithful and good and, and modeled Christ. And eventually, one day, several years down the road, she asked Nancy about faith. How, how, why do you believe the way you do and how, why is it that Christianity is the way to God? And Nancy had this beautiful expression of how to do that. And, and sometimes that's what you have to do. You have to be in those relationships and wait until they really know that you care, right? That's the old phrase. They don't care what you know until they know that you care. And because Christianity has a bad reputation of only caring until we can get them into the church, it takes longer than normal to make them understand we actually do care about you. So don't give up on your lost friends. Ever. Amen? Ever. Love them. And if you don't have some, make some. They're everywhere. Don't adopt a worldly lifestyle. Don't, don't adopt the, the world system. But you better love them. Because that's what we're here for. That's why Jesus hasn't returned and started this thing up again. Because He's waiting for us to save lost people. Or at least, not save them, but to get them to, to the Savior. I guess I want to end with this. I'll be guys the bulletin. Part of the reasons I, I um, I'll be frank with you, I, I, I referenced the bulletin is because uh, up until this point in my ministry career, I didn't have to write a bulletin article for my sermons, and so I was like, sometimes like the bulletin article is the last thing I want to say. It's like the summary of what I'm talking about, right? And so at the beginning of the week, when I should get it in, um, I don't, right? So I I, uh, I end up grabbing some of the illustrations I would have used in my sermon. And, and, and toss it in there. I don't know if that's cheating. Um, but I also want to draw your attention to these because they're really good. The, one of the back this, this morning is really good. Um, the violin. Let me just read this to you because I think it's a good way to sum up what we're doing. Fritz Kriesler, who uh, lived from 1875 to 1962, was a world-famous violinist, and he earned a fortune with his concert and compositions. But he generously gave most of it away. So, when he discovered an exquisite violin on one of his trips, he wasn't able to buy it. Later, having raised enough money to meet the asking price, he returned to the seller, hoping to purchase the beautiful instrument. But, to his great dismay, it had been sold to a collector. Chrysler made his way to the new owner's home and offered to buy the violin. The collector said it had become his prized possession and he would not sell it. 
Keenly disappointed, Chrysler was about to leave when he had an idea. Could I play the instrument one more time before it's consigned to silence? Permission was granted. And the great virtuoso filled the room with such heart-moving music that the collector's emotions were deeply stirred. He said, I have no right to keep this to myself. It is yours, Mr. Chrysler. Take it to the world and let people hear it. Isn't that beautiful? That's the gospel. Christianity isn't taking the gospel and consigning it to silence in in a, a sort of sacred isolation. We don't have any right to take something so beautiful and not share it with the world around us. We have to share it and let people hear the beautiful music of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.